for being here. That was very encouraging. A little tear. This is the church I grew up in, and this is the woman I've become. So we can take a little bit of credit for that, along with her parents who are visiting with her. Thank you, Dina. Thanks for raising Cassie, among other things. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, you know that chapter 7 and 8 focused on Daniel's visions of future events. Visions filled with mysterious imagery, beasts and rams and goats, lions and bears and maybe a tiger if you... I don't know, lions and tigers and bears, okay. Imagery that's in some ways difficult to understand. So it's with a sense of relief (sighs) that today we come to verses 1 through 19 of chapter 9. There are no visions here. They will return, but it's as if Daniel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knew that his readers, especially preachers, needed a break from the mysterious visions, the imagery And so in verses 1 through 19, Daniel records a prayer for his people. Remember, the book of Daniel begins with Daniel's people, the Jews, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, uh, because of their sin, being defeated by uh, the Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler. And Nebuchadnezzar removed them, took them from their land, the promised land. They were taken away from their temple from worship of their God, and they were dispersed, taken into captivity, slavery really, by the Babylonian Empire. They are certainly experiencing a time of great difficulty and hardship. And Daniel prays for them to be released from captivity and restored to the land, restored to their worship. And as we examine this prayer, I pray that it might encourage us in our prayer lives, especially through times of difficulty. The prayers of the Bible, including this one, are a great source of instruction and inspiration for us as we pray. And so I'm excited to speak to you today about prayer, because prayer is pretty straightforward, nothing mysterious, right? Uh, Wrong. Sometimes prayer can be as difficult or even more difficult to understand than apocalyptic visions. Think about it. One of the main themes of Daniel, one of the main things throughout the Bible, is the sovereignty of God. God's absolute control over kings and kingdoms, over history, over our very lives. God not only knows the future, but God controls the future. So let me ask you a question. If God is sovereign, why should we pray? If God has everything planned out ahead of time, what's the point of bowing our heads, asking Him for anything? If the outcome has already been determined, aren't we wasting our time and breath pleading with God? Well, the Bible says no. It repeatedly commands us, models for us, uh, uh, prayer, that we're to pray to God. To the Thessalonians, Paul writes, pray without ceasing. And if God's Word commands us to do something, it's surely uh, not in vain. So there's a great mystery when we consider God's sovereignty and human prayer, our prayers that we lift up to God. 
And I don't believe, maybe, maybe you differ, maybe you have the answer, but I don't believe we'll fully understand this mystery until we enter glory. However, as we examine Daniel's prayer, I think we'll gain insight into how we humans, we believers, we those who trust in the Lord, should pray to a sovereign God, especially in times of difficulty and hardship. And the first thing to notice is that Daniel's prayer was prompted or accelerated by reading God's Word. Daniel's prayer accelerated by God's Word. That's our first point. Beginning in verse 1, we read, In the year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldees. This fixes uh, the time of Daniel's prayer. You might remember Darius from chapter 6. He was the Mede, uh, the Medes and the Persians, we've talked about them. He was made king over the realm of the Chaldees, Babylon, by Cyrus of Persia. This took place after Cyrus, the, Cyrus the Great, the Persian, defeated the Babylonians, fulfilling, again, if you remember chapter 5, uh, the writing that was on the wall. Remember, chapter 5 ended with these words. That very night, the night of the handwriting on the wall incident, Belshazzar, the, the Chaldees king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So chronologically, this prayer takes place between Daniel chapter 5 and chapter 6, historically about 539 B.C. Shortly after the transition from the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 2. In the first year of his, King Darius's uh, reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, or as the NIV translates, the scriptures. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel was reading the books, actually the scrolls, uh, of Jeremiah the prophet. And there he found a, a a reference, a prophecy to the fact that the desolation of Jerusalem, which began with Nebuchadnezzar back, we talked, just talked about, would last uh, 70 years. Now, what part of Jeremiah was he reading? Well, certainly Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12 would have been included. The prophet writes, this whole land of Judah shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldees, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then in verse, chapter 29, verse 10 of Jeremiah, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah prophesied that because of their sin, his people would serve Babylon for 70 years. But at the end of 70 years, God would judge the Babylonians and then bring his people home. Daniel was probably reading this uh, prophecy because the Babylonian Empire had just been overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. The last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, was killed and Darius the Mede became the ruler in his stead. So God was now judging Babylon, just as he had promised in Jeremiah 25. And apparently, 
This this scripture prompts Daniel to intensify and accelerate his prayer for the fulfillment of the second half of the prophecy from Jeremiah 29, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That acceleration is what we find in verse 3. Then, after reading Jeremiah, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, this wasn't new for Daniel. Daniel was a prayer by nature, by by understanding. In chapter 6, we learn that it was his normal uh, daily practice to pray three times a day towards Jerusalem. You remember that? Landed him a little trouble, that lion's den. You remember that story? Now, this practice of praying towards Jerusalem also came from his reading of Scripture. We touched on this when we were in chapter 6. In 1 Kings 8.48, on the day Solomon dedicated the temple, we read his words to those who might or would, I don't know if it was a prophecy or what, in the future become exiles because of the sin of the people. He says, and now, so this is happening now for Daniel, if they, the exiles, repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house that I have built for your name, the temple, and then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayers and their plea, and maintain their cause. So Daniel had certainly been praying for the restoration and return of his people to their land. And as, as he saw God's promises starting to be fulfilled, this accelerated uh, his urgency in prayer. Daniel began seeking him, seeking him, God, by prayer and pleas for mercy, fasting, sackcloth, ashes. These are signs of Daniel's intense mourning and repentance for his people's sin. Notice also that when Daniel read the promise that the captivity of his people would last 70 years, he didn't reason, well, uh, okay, God is sovereign and he always keeps his promises. No need for me to pray about this. Uh, It's going to happen anyway. Instead, reading the promise of God resulted in passionate, accelerated prayer for the promise to be fulfilled. To the question, if God is sovereign, why should you pray? Daniel would have responded, it's because God is sovereign that I do pray. Daniel didn't turn it to prayer because he thought that the prophecy of 70 years might somehow fail if he didn't pray. Instead, it was because he was confident that his sovereign God would do exactly what he had promised that he then poured out his heart in fervent prayer. This is such an important lesson for us to learn as believers. Most of us have probably had the experience of of not knowing what to pray. We set aside time for prayer. We sit down and, okay, so what? There's so much or so What do I pray? Even in the midst of our trials and difficulties, sometimes we barely know how to pray. But in those circumstances and in others, we can take a page out of Daniel's book and search the scriptures so that we may pray for the things that God has clearly promised. That is an excellent idea, to pray for the things that God has clearly promised. Just a a few of many examples, maybe Uh, infinite, maybe overused, but infinite examples. In Philippians 1.6, we have the promise, 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So in the midst of our trials, we can pray that God will use them, the trials, to further his work in our hearts. That he would use them to humble us, to break our pride if that's necessary. That he would show us how desperately we need his strength in our weakness. Also in John 14, 27, Jesus promises, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. A common emotion during times of uh, trials, hardship, difficulty is, is confusion. Why is this happening? What are you doing, Lord? But in our confusion we can ask God to give us His peace. We can ask God to do a work in our troubled, fearful heart, to give us His peace that passes all understanding. One final example in Psalm 23.1, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For those like David who trust in the Lord, He's promised to be our shepherd, to provide our needs. Therefore, we can pray that He will watch over our souls and hold our hands in the most difficult of life circumstances. Now, these are quick, short examples. We could look at many more. And there's much more we could say related to uh, God's Word and prayer. I thought about doing a whole sermon on this topic. But I'm hoping to finish Daniel before Advent so we could go to Christmas stuff. So anyway, but instead, so instead, I've, I've passed, I'll pass, I'll, I'm going to pass on a book recommendation that many of us were given by Dr. Dan Wilson during our recent biblical critical courses. How many were there for that? Dr. Wilson recommended the book, and I have a copy or two here, Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Christine and I took his recommendation and are currently reading through it together. We, we tend to read uh, like before we go to bed, and so we read a page or two and, and we're out. So we're, we're moving through it slowly, uh, but even what it, he's saying, it's making sense and we're looking forward to continuing. And if you'd like to learn more about praying the Bible, I'd encourage you to read it also. In fact, I have three copies, to give away to the first three people who come after the service and ask. And if you don't get one, it's available on Amazon for the whopping price of $8.59. That's probably what a gallon of gas will cost in a few months. So a gallon of gas, praying the Bible, money well spent, right? Okay, so Daniel is prompted to accelerate his prayers for his people by reading the promises God gave his people in his word. Now let's analyze Daniel's prayer. Let's get to the prayer. This prayer consists of three basic elements. They're in your notes. If you have under number two, there's three things. And if you want to fill in all three blanks right now, you can. Because I'm going to tell you. Verse 4 through 15 contain the first two elements sort of intermixed together. Adoration by proclaiming who God is and confession of sins. And then the prayer concludes in verses 16 through 19 with the third element, supplication for God's sake. Unfortunately, uh, no thanksgiving, so we only have ACS, not the familiar ACTS, Acts, 
sort of a prayer guide, adoration, confection, thanksgiving, and supplication. So I don't know why Daniel didn't do thanksgiving, but we can add that too. So uh, let's read the prayer. I'm going to read the first part of the prayer, verses just 1 through 15. So you'll have to hang in there, pay attention. Uh, To help us, I've underlined on the overhead, and I'll point it out too, the adoration, proclamation of who God is. The rest, what is not underlined, is mainly confession of the sins of, of the people. So, here we go. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, and now adoration, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Confession. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Adoration. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Confession. But to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which we have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs our open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Adoration. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness confession. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Then in verses 12, And the beginning of 13, Daniel tells what happened because of the people's sin. He has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We'll look at the law of Moses, what it's referring to shortly. Now confession again, yet we have not entered the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth, adoration. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, confession. And we have not obeyed his voice, adoration. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt, with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as this day. Confession, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Whew, I'm a little tired. Anybody want to take over? No, just kidding, can't do that. So that's the first part of the prayer, probably two-thirds. Now let's look at the, 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 the first element. Let's analyze adoration by proclaiming who God is. You know, that's what adoration is. It's proclaiming to God His great and wonderful attributes. And since all of God's attributes are great and wonderful, adoration is proclaiming who God is. Daniel is proclaiming God's greatness 
to himself and all who would read his prayer. In verse 4, he writes, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps commandments and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here Daniel declares that God is great and awesome, that he's faithful. He keeps his covenant. He fulfills his promises. That he is loving towards those who love him and shows uh, love to those who obey. Then in verses 7 and 14, he declares God's righteousness. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he's done. God is righteous. He's perfect. He's, He's right. Always right. Always good. Always pure. Always holy. Verse 9, Daniel declares, To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. God is merciful and forgiving. In fact, these words, mercy and forgiveness, are both plural in the Hebrew, suggesting God's repeated acts of mercy and forgiveness to His rebellious people. And it's God's abundant mercy and forgiveness that will form the basis of Daniel's request in the supplication section at the end of the prayer. And in verse 15 we read, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day. God has been faithful in the past. He's also powerful. He has a mighty hand. And his name is great. So throughout the first half of the prayer, Daniel again and again extols God's many virtues. And weaved in between the virtues of God are the sins of the people. That's the second element of Daniel's prayer. Confession of sin. Daniel, as a prophet of the Lord, confessed both his own sin and the sins of of, the, of his people. And we're not going to reread all of Daniel's confession, but here are some highlights or, or lowlights. They sinned against God. They did wrong. They acted wickedly. They rebelled against God. They broke the commandments of God. They ignored God's prophets. They committed treachery against God. They disobeyed the voice of the Lord their God. I think we get the point, right? They really blew it, and Daniel fully acknowledges that fact. But also, in confessing their sin, Daniel draws this stark contrast between God and his people. That's really uh, much of the point here. Israel had sinned and rebelled, uh, not against themselves, not against some some, uh, strange deity, but against God, the great and gracious God. In verse 4 and 5, Daniel says, O Lord... The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Verse 14, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And finally, verse 15, and now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. The contrast between the faithful holy God and the faithless unholy people is extremely clear here. God's chosen people had turned away away from the commandments, the covenant that God had made with them at Mount Sinai. And under the terms of that covenant, as written in the law of Moses, 
which Daniel mentioned twice in his prayer, the people of God would experience defeat and exile from the land of promise. We see this in uh, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 28. In this chapter, God outlines what will happen if his people faithfully obey him and what will happen if they don't. Uh, sort of known as blessings and curses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. In verse 15 we read, down in the, the beginning of the curses section, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall be upon you and overtake you. And then he lists the curses, including, in verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Because, of the, because the Lord is righteous and faithful, he had to follow through with the promises, with this promised judgment. Therefore, they were rightly defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and deported, exiled into Babylon. So Daniel not only confessed the sin of the people, he also acknowledged the justice of God's judgment, severe though it was. And notice, uh, Daniel makes no excuses for Israel. He didn't challenge the fairness of God's dealings with them. How can a God of love allow his people to be defeated and exiled, be taken into slavery? Instead, Daniel confessed that based on the covenant, Israel fully deserved the fate they had experienced for the rebellion against a holy, gracious God. Daniel, in this confession, is clearly saying, we deserved everything we got. You, O oh God, were right to judge us. And that brings us to the final element of Daniel's prayer, supplication for God's sake. Now, if you're reading this, the first part, you might think, mm, after such a scathing confession, one in which Daniel didn't hold back, one in which he freely acknowledges that Israel had done everything wrong, you might think, he would conclude by saying, well, Lord, we deserved what we got. Thanks that you didn't just wipe us from the face of the earth. Thanks that we are actually still here. That's good enough. But instead, Daniel turns to supplication, to asking God for deliverance. And what made him think he could do that? Well, two things. First, because God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. So Daniel could ask for mercy and forgiveness. Isn't that good to know? God's nature is to show mercy. And so when we're asking him for mercy, for forgiveness, we're asking him to be who he is, to be merciful to us. And second, he could ask for what God had promised in his word, what he had promised in Jeremiah, 70 years and then restoration. Plus, Daniel knew that Deuteronomy not only spoke of judgment, the judgment that would come to Israel when they sinned against the Lord, it also spoke of the promise of a new beginning for Israel beyond sin and judgment. In the beginning of chapter 30, we read, And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curses which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, that's where they're at now, as Daniel prays, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your sword. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
So after the acknowledging the greatness of God and the sinfulness of his people, Daniel, based on both the character of God and the word of God, the promises of God in Jeremiah and Deuteronomy, then turns to supplication, to request, to asking God for something. He calls upon the Lord to fulfill his promises. Not because the people deserved it, but for God's own sake. And this is crucial. Let's see it. Beginning in verse 16, we read, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for our iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those around us. The basis of Daniel's supplication is not his own righteousness or the righteousness of the people. He doesn't say, God, we're basically good people, so could you just give us a break on this one? Daniel bases his supplication on God's righteousness, God's faithfulness to his promises. And notice he also points out that Jerusalem, God's holy city, and God's people have been a byword or as the NSB translates, a rep- reproach to all those around us. God, I, I pray for the restoration of your people for your sake, based on your righteousness and because your city and people are being laughed at. Verse 17 continues, Now therefore, O our Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant, and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Daniel prays for mercy, for restoration, for, for, coming, for the people coming back to the land, to their temple, for God's own sake. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. There's a city, Jerusalem. It's, you're the God there, and it's desolate. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, remember that every time you pray. God, I, I'm not, I didn't earn this. I'm coming to you because you're merciful. Have mercy on me. Daniel appeals to God's righteousness and mercy for the city that is called by God's name. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Again, Daniel's not making these requests because of any righteousness in his own personal self or his people. He's not saying, remember, God, how I trusted you and went into the lion's den. Oh, wait, that's happening in the future. This is between, this is before that. I got to back up. Remember when I trusted you and didn't eat that meat sacrifice to the idols? Come on. He doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to even the good things he did. Do we do that? Oh, God, remember how I served you. Uh, You owe me this one, right? That's manipulation. That's paganism. That's what the pagans, that's what every other religion in the world does. If I do this, then God has to do this for me. Not so. Daniel does not go there. Even though of all people in Scripture, Daniel could have went there, right? But simply because of God's commitment to the glory of his name. That's that's his appeal. 
for your sake, for your name, I appeal to you. When God chose Israel out of the, the nations, Abraham, and took him down into Egypt and, and brought him out of G- Egypt, making them his people, you will be my people, I will be your God, he linked himself to them, for better or for worse. That, that's the, the marriage vows. It's similar in this case, for better or for worse. God said, I will be your God. And as a result, if Israel was destroyed, it might be a fitting and just punishment for them. They may have deserved it, but it would lead the nations to question God's power. Was the God of the Jews, Yahweh, unable to deliver His people and give them the things He promised? Therefore, to show the greatness of His grace and to vindicate the honor of His name, the Lord must redeem His people and restore them to favor. Are we getting this? Because it may seem a little weird. You may go, really? Is that what he's saying? Well, let's listen to uh, Daniel's contemporary, Ezekiel. Very clear. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, God is speaking to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Sort of this restoration of of the Jews to Israel was a vindication of God's name and sort of an evangelistic effort to the nations. Here. This is who God is. This is what He does. He restores His people. So Daniel prayed with bold confidence that God would show favor to His people and restore His sanctuary for God's own sake, for God's own glory, for God's honor among the nations. So so that's Daniel's prayer for his people. And as we think about that prayer, I think there's application here for us. That's our final point. Daniel's prayer applied to us. The principles of Daniel's prayer provide us with a model for our own prayers. Like Daniel, we should include adoration, proclaiming who God is, confession of sin, supplication, supplication for God's sake in our prayers. We too should proclaim to ourselves the truth of who God is. That's how Jesus tells us to begin our prayers. Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing we should do when we pray is proclaim the greatness, the holiness of the one to whom we pray. This accomplishes three things. First, it brings adoration, worship, praise, honor, glory to the Lord. Hallowed be thy name. You're great and Powerful, your mercy and love abound forever. Second, it strengthens our heart, reminding us, proclaiming to ourselves the greatness of the one to whom we pray. God, you have a mighty hand. You can accomplish anything. And third, it it provides motivation and power behind our prayers. This is who we're praying to. Not some tribal deity, but to the God of the universe. If we forget God's greatness, His mighty power, His righteousness, faithfulness, love, grace, mercy, His uh, 
all his attributes, who he truly is, then our prayers can become weak and small. I certainly find this true in my own life. When I don't spend time in God's Word, seeing and then reminding myself of who He is, my prayers not only become less frequent, but less powerful. When I forget God's greatness, that He's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, that He's the one who created all things out of nothing, that He's the one who raises up kings and empires and brings them down. If I forget these things, then, then I don't pray for the great and mighty works of God's Spirit in my life, in the life of our church, in the lives of our people in our community, in our nation. When I forget God's faithfulness and love and grace and mercy, I can be tempted to think that we, uh, me and you, are beyond repair beyond restoration, that our repeated sins are just too much for God to overcome. But that's not the case. To the Lord our God belong, they're His. He owns mercy and forgiveness. In God we have one who is not only powerful and holy, but merciful and forgiving. This means we can, we must come to Him humbly confessing our sins. But even in our confession, we should, as Daniel modeled, weave adoration to the Lord. Because when we focus solely on our sins and failures, it can lead to despair. It can lead away from prayer. I don't want to keep going there. Because we start to think God couldn't possibly forgive, let alone use someone like me. Someone who's blown it so many times. Also, when we see the sin in other Christians around us, it can have a similar result. People in church regularly, uh, not this church, other churches, regularly disappoint us and let us down. And we're tempted to believe that uh, God can't use you either. So why pray at all? For ourselves or for others? If we are all such broken and damaged vessels, the answer is that we, like Daniel, should not pray for ourselves or others based on our righteousness, because we don't have any on our own, but instead based on God's power and grace, His righteousness, His love, His mercy, forgiveness. As John writes, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are able to confess our sins to God, to, to lay bare our hearts before Him. Because He's faithful, He's just, He's forgiving. And He's able to work in our, in our lives and the lives of others. He's able to cleanse us from this unrighteousness that we brought upon ourselves. So experiencing transformation and cleansing, experiencing the love and the grace and the mercy of God comes when we... Take our sins to Him in repentance and confession, knowing who He is, declaring who He is. When we acknowledge our transgressions and in the power of God's Spirit turn away, uh, turn away from our wicked ways, He heals. He brings cleansing. The solution to our sin is not to brush it aside, to put it under the carpet and pretend that it doesn't exist, 
There are plenty of people in our world who want to do that, even in the church. People who don't even want uh, to mention that word sin. That was not Daniel's way. The answer to our sin is to remember God's grace and to confess it before Him, throwing ourselves on the sovereign mercy of the Lord. Based on who I am in myself, based on who you are in yourself, we are no better than the children of Israel in Daniel's day or in the day when they were taken out of the land. We do not deserve God's love or forgiveness. We do not deserve His continual work of sanctification in our lives. But God, but God, sort of the greatest two words in the English language, or any language, who is faithful to His covenants, has set His name upon us, calling us His children, choosing us to be part of His family. He's attached His honor in this world to us, to you and I. So one form of supplication would be to pray for our sanctification based on His name. God, I keep blowing it. And people are beginning to talk. For Your namesake, empower me to overcome my sin. Or as we uh, talked about from the beginning, and as Daniel demonstrated, maybe the best thing to request from God as we think about supplication is that He fulfill the promises in our lives and the lives of others. God, you've promised in your word. I mean, we talked about three of them earlier, but let's, one more. You promised in your word, in all these things, and a lot of things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8, 37. Oh Lord, who loves us, who loves me, I'm facing a, a trial, a difficulty. I'm in pain, and I'm not sure I'm going to make it through. I'm struggling with a temptation, and I'm not sure that I can overcome it. I'm not feeling love uh, for you or for others. How can I represent you in my world? I can't stand uh, for a moment in my strength, and I have no words of my own to say. But I belong to you. You've sealed me with your spirit, and your word promises that in all things I... We, I, am more than a conqueror. Not in myself, not because of myself, but because through you who loves me. So God, I call upon you. I plead with you, O sovereign Lord, to keep your promise for your name's sake. Empower me to overcome this difficulty in my life. By your Spirit, give me the strength to run from this temptation. Give me the heart and the words and the works to represent you in this world for your namesake, for your glory, and for my good. Would you accomplish your purposes in this world through me and through others like me? Amen. That, I believe, is a taste of how we should pray, how Daniel's prayer teaches us to pray. Our prayer should be filled with adoration for God, proclaiming who He is, our prayer should include confession of our sin that we might experience forgiveness, cleansing, sanctification, restoration. And our prayers, our requests, what we ask of God, our supplication should be based on the Word of God, the promises of God for you and me. Those are the prayers that God will answer yes every time to. And that's what we're going to see next week. 
as we uh, look at the rest of chapter 9, Daniel's answer to prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this lesson, these lessons that you give us in your word through prayer, Father. I pray that that we could uh, contemplate these, we could think about these. Father, I pray that for each of us, we would incorporate adoration and confession to our supplication in prayer, that we would confess to you our sins, that you would allow, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we adore you and honor you, and then we would pray for your promises in our life. Father, I pray that you would just be with us, continue to to work in our lives for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Amen.